welcome to Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Thank you, Black Light listeners, for tuning in to another episode. On this episode, I have a special guest who is out of Virginia who has been wrongfully convicted. And I want you guys to hear his story. He's a vet out of Virginia that has been wrongfully convicted like so many people that we know of. So I will introduce him and then he will tell you your stories. So we have today with us Tim Wright. Tim, will you say hey to the audience and just tell a little bit about you and then how you ended up in this crazy situation? Absolutely. How's everybody doing? I appreciate the opportunity to tell everybody my story and hopefully, you know, share my experiences. Prior to 2008, uh, when I was arrested, uh, I had grown up in a fairly uh, religiously strict home background, homeschooled. I didn't have a whole lot of experience with the typical socialization that kids get in high school or in public schools. And so all that kind of played a factor in my behavior and who I was as a person. Mm -hmm. Uh, And ultimately was kind of used to slander me at trial. Um, When I was 18, I joined the Marine Corps. I served two years, two months. Spent uh, one tour of duty in combat in Ramadi, Iraq in 2006. I was uh, discharged in July of 2007. I went into the construction industry and built houses until the market shut down in 2008 uh, with the loans that uh, kind of dried up the junk loan situation that put everybody in recession. I moved back to Virginia in uh, three months after I moved back to Virginia. I was accused of committing first-degree murder in a little town called Amherst and I was arrested about three and a half days uh, after they found the victim. My story is interesting in that the person who ultimately fingered me as the person who committed the crime was the son of a ranking deputy sheriff in Amherst County. Uh, He told his father uh, the day after the uh, victim was found in the case that his pistol had gone missing and he wanted to file a missing police report. So mm-hmm. he started with that. And then the following day, he decided he wanted to change his story and said that his weapon had been stolen. So naturally, he went in to give him that statement. They said, well, if it was stolen, how do you know it was stolen? Who stole it? And he said, well, I think Tim stole it because he's the only one that knew where it was at. So they took his statement and, you know, normal curiosity was, you know, wonder if this has anything to do with the recent murder that we don't have a suspect for. Um, But the police never really followed anything up, never really pressed anything. Ultimately, three, about three days after they found the victim, Justin Davis, who became my co-defendant, went back to the police and said, uh, I got another story for you. He said, um, I know who stole my weapon, and I know 
how it was stolen, and I know that it was used in a crime because I was in the passenger seat or the driver's seat driving the vehicle when the crime was committed. Um, what makes you think that he just decided to go back three days later to say, you know, after he reported his gun missing, instead of telling that story right then and there, what makes you think that made him go back and say that or give extra details? Well, I believe that one, he was probably looking for a way to admit his involvement in the crime, but try to mitigate his involvement mm -hmm. by blaming it on other people or other circumstances. I think that there was an aspect of it that I played in that in when all this happened and I found out that this individual had been murdered his ex-girlfriend, her family, myself, and some others had gone fairly public in the community on my face and just through phone calls and text messages telling people that we were looking for who was involved in this crime and if we found who it was, we were going to get street justice. And when I found out that he reported his weapon missing, I immediately knew that he had to have had some involvement because he never went anywhere without that weapon. It was in the in the car with him, in the glove compartment. It was on his person at all times. It was his. It was his buddy. <laughs> being a man, bragging like it was the thing that made him cool, and he was happy to show everybody. So the fact that it went missing or he was claiming it was stolen threw up a lot of red flags. And I told them on Tuesday morning, I believe I left a voicemail on his phone saying that, you know, I thought he had something to do with it that I would uh, handle him myself. And a couple hours later, he's in the police station telling him, yep, I know it's him that did it because I was there driving the vehicle. Um, mm. So when he gave that story to the police, uh, he ultimately made that story to Lieutenant Eric Elliott, who's second in command in the investigator's office. He told him, he said, hold on, let me go talk to my boss and uh, see what we can do. Ultimately, what they could do was swear out arrest warrants for my arrest based on his story and his claims. But it felt like, despite him putting himself there at the crime, that they didn't need to swear out arrest warrants for him or suspect him in any way, shape, or form. Right. Um, I came back from work Tuesday afternoon, May 6th, and uh, I was dropped off. I carpooled with my dad to a job instead of driving my truck there and I had somebody else pick me up on the way back and uh, they pulled in next to my truck I got out opened my truck up put all my stuff in the truck put the keys in the ignition got a cigarette out stepped out the truck to light it and there were SWAT officers and cops pulling in from every direction jumping out of trees and over retaining walls and then you know ex-military I actually went to the ground on my knees, you know, crossed my legs, crossed my hands, and uh, they arrested me, put me in a cop car, and I, I kind of knew the officer from around town, and I, was, I asked him, what's going on, why, why am I being arrested, and he said, it, it doesn't look good, so they drove me around mm -hmm. to the police station, and they already had every news outlet in the area there already, and uh, they took me in the office, and told me, you know, you know why you're here? And I said, no, if I knew I was here, I wouldn't ask you why. <laughs> I said, well, this is why you're here. We're arresting you for the murder of Justin Bungardner, the victim. 
what department was his father? Was he working for the same police department in the same city or was it a different city and county? He was a deputy sheriff working for the same police department and he was a part of that scene, the police department, up until two weeks before I went to trial, at which point he was he resigned to look to avoid the look of impropriety. Um, mm. But he was part of the police department in the case for, I'll see, May, June, July, August, September, about four and a half, five months. So he was um, part of the actual uh, investigation? Was, he was not listed as a detective or an officer involved in the, in the, actual investigative files mm-hmm. but he was part of the police department and part of the same team of officers that were working on the case that his son was a supposed witness in potentially an abductee in and uh, you know yeah. he was he had contact with the witnesses with his son with the people that were test- were trying to testify on my behalf and was forcing them to change their statements so there was a lot of third party involvement by him mm-hmm. um, but nothing that's on the record so ultimately I was arrested and uh, went to trial October 1st four day trial and, four days? Uh, I was convicted four days yes four days that was uh, everything from jury selection to you know the jury reviewing the case and finding me guilty yeah four days well that don't even sound like the prosecution had a, a a strong case because you know most cases that are that strong especially in a murder case takes more than four days generally yes i think it was a combination of the prosecutor had mostly circumstantial evidence and my attorney who was uh, a prosecutor in that county for over 20 years before becoming a defense attorney um, I learned after I was convicted that he had, in essence, sold me under the bus to the prosecutor to win several other murder cases he was being paid for. Yeah, my husband. Court-appointed attorney. That exactly what happened to my <laughs> husband, so we know. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, well, I've, I've since learned, too, that he was a raging alcoholic and a known coke addict, and he was paid off with cocaine. <laughs> Unfortunately, he passed away in December of last year before we had a chance to interview him personally. Um, So we're, you know, going back and talking to people that knew him and knew what was going on in the county, the dealings they had. But needless to say, he definitely sold me under the bus. If I knew what I knew today, I would have fired him immediately in court the first time he opened his mouth. His opening statement to the jury was, there's a lot of evidence or circumstantial evidence in this case. Don't believe it. There's cell phone evidence that proves my client wasn't at the crime scene. I don't own a cell phone. I don't have a clue about it, but I'm telling you, believe it. It proves his innocence. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, basically, I'm incompetent. Don't don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But please <laughs> believe he's innocent. I should have jumped up right then and there and fired him on the spot. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't know I had the ability to do that. And uh, I learned the hard way. Right. Um, like most. The prop. Yes. The prosecution, they built its case and its story around an ideology that I was a jaded, jealous person involved in a three-way love love triangle. Myself, the victim, and his ex-girlfriend. I knew his ex-girlfriend from before they had ever dated when my family had first moved to Amherst, I moved up there in, 
I built my dad's house in Wallace State up there to build the house. I met Shane Bailey, whose mother was dating the cop <laughs> mm. in this case. Coincidence. And, yeah. So through him, I went to the football games at Amherst County High School, and there I met a bunch of girls in the community, and one of them was the victim's ex-girlfriend. And I actually dated one of her high school friends back then. Ultimately, I left and went in the military and never heard or saw these people ever again um, until I came back to Virginia. And it just so happened that Justin Davis, my co-defendant in this case, he knew the victim's ex-girlfriend's cousin. And when she broke up with the victim, her cousin called Justin Davis and said, hey, my uh, cousin just broke up with her boyfriend. Uh, I'll set you up on a blind date. Justin Davis was not very sociable. He was a bit awkward. He was about four or five years older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't have his own vehicle. He drove his dad's blue Saturn. And he asked me, he said, hey, would you take me down there to blind date? And I said, okay, sure. Well, you know, I don't care. <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> I drove him down to the local Walmart, and it just so happened I knew that girl's cousin, uh, Michael Burks, from before I had left uh, for the military. Um, he was maybe high functioning autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just he'd sit at the at the front front of the Walmart atrium, and the, there was a bench there. He just sit there all day long, all day, all night. Uh, and I knew him from that, from having gone through there a lot. His cousin comes out, Nicole Turpin, the girl involved in this case, and uh, she walks up to my truck and says, hey, you're here to meet, you know, Justin Davis. And she goes around talking to him for a few minutes, comes back around to my side and says, yeah, he's, yeah, he's not, not interested. Uh, she's like, but I know you from somewhere. And I was like, oh, I have no clue. And she's like, yeah, you're, I remember you from high school. So we ultimately swapped phone numbers, and it turned out that she was in her senior year of high school along with Shane Bailey's girlfriend. So they both were doing half days in their senior year. And so she would come over a lot of times in the afternoon with his girlfriend to his house where I would go after work. And we were working on tearing down two vehicles and making one, uh, making a mud truck for him. And uh, we'd still need to hang out all the time. And I ended up spending quite a lot of time with her, her family from the community. She's got a lot of connections and stuff like that. And so uh, I spent a, a lot of time hanging out with her as well as, you know, half a dozen other girls, but right. the prosecutor only tried to draw a picture of some jealous person that was involved in a three-way triangle. She loved her ex-boyfriend, Justin Bumgarner. I knew him from back to high school days. Most people didn't know that I was trying to help them get back together, work out their differences and get back together. I knew she cared about him. I wasn't, you know, I saw her like a sister. Where my, because of my background being homeschooled, not growing up in a typical socialized world, my understanding of relationships or how you talk to girls or other people had been developed based on what I saw people do, what I thought was normal, who I was as a person, and just what I had kind of trademarked as this is me. Right. And I was the kind of person where, I said, I love you to all the girls in my life, not just the one I dated, all of them, but it didn't mean I was dating them or having sex with them. It just, I said, that's how I was. I it's just I a friendly gesture. Me. Yeah. 
it, it for us it was friendly, but I, I I do understand looking back now how easily people would have looked at that and thought that there was more going on because of how we conduct ourselves. Because a lot of our interactions would have looked at the outside person like somebody you were dating. But I at the time that this whole case happened, I was married, going through a separation from my ex-wife. I was openly dating another girl from Chesapeake, Virginia, and then I had two twin sisters that I hung out with all the time, and they both wanted to be with me, but we weren't involved, we weren't doing anything, we just spent a lot of time, one of them I, could, I would go to and talk to about my struggles and things I was going through from PTSD, getting out of the military and stuff, she was the only person I could talk to about that, and there was no pretense there, I feel like I could tell her, and it wasn't, you know, somebody you're dating, you don't want to tell them necessarily all the bad sides to you, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. with her, I could just be open and just, I could tell her everything I was struggling with. But, again, that didn't suit or, or fit the narrative that they wanted to tell. All they cared about was we have your call logs and there's your insane amount of phone calls to Nicole and we're going to make that look like you're some jealous lover, love triangle, even what everybody said, they knew we weren't dating and we never saw us do anything that dating people would do or any of that stuff. Um, that's the story they sold. And that was what they pushed and built the entire case around. The problem was is the physical evidence proved everything that they said wrong. Right. Unfortunately, a lot of the physical evidence was never brought about in the case because they lied and said it never existed. And my defense attorney either didn't know it was there because he didn't bother to read the main police report or he was in on the, you know, the cover-up, if you want to say, mm -hmm. of the truth. Um, largest piece of evidence that was available to the police was a trajectory report or analysis. In the main police report, the crime scene report that was filled out by the investigator in charge of processing the crime scene, they clearly note that both himself and another investigator conducted a trajectory analysis on the victim's vehicle. Mm -hmm. We have that notation. We have photographs that they took of the victim's vehicle. We have photographs of their attempt at a trajectory analysis using strings and supposed trajectory rods, mm -hmm. as well as measurements where they measured from the ground to different uh, defects in the victim's vehicles, whether they be a bullet hole through the windshield or a scrape mark or some form of penetration into the sheet metal. So it's very clear that they at least attempted to do a trajectory analysis, and they say they did one. But when we got to trial and my defense attorney questioned them on what they did, the police and the, the investigator who did all these things on the witness stand itemized everything he did and left out that he ever did a trajectory analysis. Now, my attorney oh. never questioned him directly about it. He did, however, question Virginia State Police investigators on whether a trajectory analysis was done in the case. And they said, no, it was never done, but it would have been good had one been done. The whole time, one had been done. Problem is, is, there's no analysis, there's no conclusion, there's no final result from having done all that. Now, we know that they reached some kind of conclusion. The theory is 
the conclusion did not support their theory or the case that they were trying to present. And that is one of the things that I have brought attention to and tried to push for 15 years in prison. And finally, in the last few years, I have some people that are helping me with that. I have a world-renowned forensic trajectory expert, and I just um, had another person join the case who is a world-renowned 3D scanner and trajectory expert. He has dozens of peer-reviewed forensic reports. He travels all over the world and teaches, and they are working on doing a proper trajectory analysis, 3D scan of the original crime scene, building a full model their initial analysis, just from going over the results that the police came to, that just off of their original police report, mm-hmm. there is no doubt I could not have committed the crime from my vehicle. Now, we can't prove that I couldn't have committed the crime from a different vehicle or in a different way, but we can prove that I definitely did not commit it from my vehicle. Because the trajectory shows that the rounds fired into the victim's vehicle were fired up into his vehicle, potentially from a foot and a half or two off the ground. The vehicle I was driving Mm -hmm. was an F-250 Super Duty four-door extended bed Triton V10 on a four-inch lift kit, four-inch suspension, 36-inch Super Swamper. My tires, let alone, were three foot tall. The floorboard of my truck was almost five feet off the ground. Right. The victim's vehicle was only five foot four inches tall. So my truck could have practically driven over top of his vehicle. The rounds would have had to been fired down into the vehicle. Right. Exactly. Now, as as a way of proving that I couldn't have committed the crime beyond the fact that I can prove that I couldn't have committed it from my truck, the prosecutor went through inordinate measures try to prove that I was in my truck the entire night. They pulled video surveillance, they pulled witness statements, time stamp, everything they could to prove I was in my vehicle that entire night. One of the things they pulled was surveillance from a little quickie mart in Amherst County, about a 30 minutes drive from the crime scene, showing my truck driving through the surveillance. Right. However, nobody attempted to actually get a timestamp for that video. All the videos from that store had a timestamp except the one that my truck is on. It's in an administrative file that nobody accessed. But it's highly likely that that timestamp will match the other timestamps and show my vehicle passing through that surveillance anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes after the crime happened at a place 30 minutes from the crime scene, making it really hard to be in two places at once. Well, if you you were driving, right? Like you were driving your truck, right? Exactly. I was in my truck, driving my truck that night. So how could you shoot him if if the guy said that he was the driver, that would have made you the passenger. But if you were driving your truck, then that that doesn't add up. Well, that is the interesting (laughs) variation of stories that Justin Davis gave. Justin Davis gave seven different statements after the first one saying that he was the driver and I was a passenger when I committed the crime. His first story was we left the park. 
we turned left on Route 130, never saw the victim's vehicle, didn't know where he was at, but that we took off in a general direction at 75 to 90 miles an hour, that I demanded he switch seats with me from the passenger to the driver's seat so he could drive, that I managed to find his black gun in a dark truck at 9 o'clock at night in the dark under the passenger seat, that we somehow caught up to the victim's vehicle and could identify the victim's vehicle amongst the other 50 vehicles driving in either direction on this road, and that I demanded he drive past the victim's vehicle in oncoming traffic while I reached out of my window and fired his pistol into the victim's vehicle and managed to shoot him through his body from under the armpit through the heart, both lungs, and the bullet rested against his ribcage on the right side. While doing all this driving, switching everything else. Well, first of all... That was his first story. If, if you're driving at 90 miles an hour, how do you have time to switch drivers without stopping and pulling over? Exactly. <laughs> and so if you ever go to my website and you listen to the audio recordings that the police made of his witness statement that were recorded without his knowledge, several days later, they, brought, they picked him up in one of the squad cars with the recording on and drove him back to the area of the crime scene. And they drove the area. And they asked them to explain exactly what happened step by step as they drove. And he gave them, in essence, the same story as his initial statement that was the result that resulted in my arrest. And as he gave the story, you could hear the two officers telling him, you sure that happened? Because that couldn't happen that way. You sure it didn't happen this way? And like they, they were leading him to a different statement. story. Like they were leading him to. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So in the second time that they put him in the squad car and drove through the crime scene, his statement in that version matched what they told him it should have looked more like. Well, you had to have stopped. You couldn't have switched seats while you're driving. You had to have seen the victim's vehicle turn on this road because how else would you have found it? You must have been threatened by Tim, or else how is it that you're in the driver's seat and he's in the passenger seat hanging out of the window and you couldn't just jerk the wheel and send them flying down the road? But all that <laughs> so they, doesn't make sense. It slowly mirrored what they were looking for. Because even if you stopped and pulled over, how would you have enough time to catch up with him and see where he went when it's dark? Again, <laughs> this is why none of the evidence adds up. If you look at the surveillance that was recovered from the corner store where the victim would have turned left, where I would have had to turn left if I were to follow the victim, that surveillance captures the main road, Route 130, that the crime happened on in both directions. I sat down and watched the surveillance from 9 to 10 o'clock and wrote down the timestamp and the basic color or look of the vehicle, like gray truck or white car, driving in both directions, east and west, for that entire hour. There are vehicles driving both directions every 30 seconds or a minute the entire hour, nonstop, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. So you would have had to 
magically turn behind the victim before another vehicle showed up, mm-hmm. you would have had to commit the crime on a road where vehicles were driving in both directions constantly. And nobody saw anything. Nobody supposedly heard anything. And all of this magically happened. Now, we can go beyond that to the cell phone records. They pulled cell phone records for myself, for Justin Davis, Nicole Turpin, and Justin Lumpard. Now, the big issue with the cell phone records is the prosecutor put a all-tell store manager on the stand as their expert to testify about cell phone tower location, cell phone tower technology, and cell phone technology. And he gave evidence of technology that existed in 1980. Hasn't existed in 30 years. We have a world-renowned, one of the foremost experts in cell phone technology has reviewed the case and given us multiple peer-reviewed forensic reports that have been in the Washington Post and other major um, news articles where he can demonstrate that everything he said was a lie was false. It was technology that existed 20 or 30 years before my case and hadn't since. And he explained how prosecutors use these people to testify in cases with information that is outdated because it suits their needs. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, he tried to say that because my cell phone records show that calls I made during the crime were processed by a tower that covered an area that included the crime scene, that meant I must have been at the crime scene. However, the technology proves otherwise. The tower that receives your call does not necessarily process your call. No. If it is overloaded with calls, mm-hmm. it will bounce your call to, to the next tower, third mm-hmm. tower, and that will be the one that processes your call and shows up on your billing report. Mm-hmm. The only way you can prove which one actually received your call or processed your call, you have to get Altel or Verizon or any cell phone company to download the billions of data bytes of information from all the towers, and you have to call through all that to find which one actually received it, which one processed it. Mm-hmm. Then if you do that, you still have to deal with the fact that all modern cell phone towers have a minimum range range of up to 20 to 28 miles in any given direction. There are some that have 360 coverage and some that have conical coverage where they cover just a pie-shaped area in any direction. But they have an enormous range on them and have for 20 or 30 years, not the six or eight miles that the cell phone expert claims. Needless to say, there were eight cell phone towers all within six miles of each other in Amherst that show up on my call log. I lived there in those in that range, Justin Davis, Shane Bailey, my parents, the victim, the crime scene. It covered an entire county. They can't prove where I was at because you can only do um, triangulation, cell phone triangulation in real time live. You cannot triangulate after the fact. If a cell phone expert tells you that, they're lying. It cannot be done. They cannot prove where you were at because even the receiving tower could be 20 miles from your position. So that the cell phone records are a bogus forensic 
used to try to convict people with evidence that they cannot prove where you were at with. Mm-hmm. The surveillance at the court at the store that was 30 minutes drive from the crime scene that was never even introduced in my case. I didn't even know it existed until eight years after my trial when I fought my attorney to the GSA bar to turn over 52 CDs of electronic records in my case. Wow. In those records, it's the first time I learned that not a single statement, not a single witness statement that was collected by the police was ever signed by any of the witnesses. Every statement was transcribed by the police as a synopsis of the recording that they took without the knowledge of the witness. None of them were signed. None of them were the true statements of the witness. All those recordings were never brought up at trial, never played. I didn't know they existed until eight years after my trial when I finally got those recordings. They recorded multiple other witnesses in my case that to this day, we still do not have the recordings for. Wow. That's crazy. So did your attorney, did he even confront that witness? Well, the co-defendant to prove his credibility or disprove his credibility? He never, he, he confronted him in the way that a normal, uh, a normal defense attorney would that's not trying, you know, mm-hmm. are you trying to set up Mr. Wright? Is it true that you really were the one who was jaded by the fact that you, you know, were set up and she turned you down and the typical questions, the basic questions, not the detailed. Yeah. 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 It's the difference between a court-appointed attorney and paying half a million dollars for an attorney that will actually fight for your life. But who has a half a million dollars? (laughs) Well, that's why the saying, it's better to be rich and guilty Mm -hmm. than poor and innocent. Mm -hmm. You got that Because the justice system is a pay-to-play system. It doesn't matter if you're innocent or guilty. It's a money system. Mm -hmm. And we can go into the laws, common law, commercial law, and how our laws in America change create a monetary system but it's a money system you pay to play and let's be real how many people can afford to pay for their innocence or pay for their freedom very few which is why there's such so a many. large number of wrongfully convicted people in prison mm-hmm. they can't afford to pay for their freedom they can't pay for their innocence and we all know the money isn't going to a lawyer that's actually spending more hours researching your case it's just going to a lawyer who plays golf with the judge and pays them fifty thousand dollars yep. with campaign to ensure you're free. Yep, that's exactly yeah. what happened in our case. Exactly, same thing. Exactly. <laughs> and it's and it, and it's I mean and it's a sad reality that most Americans refuse to believe or refuse to educate themselves about because we live in a world where I'm happy as long as my little radius is going just fine. As long mm-hmm. as my trash is picked up and my school bus runs on time, picks up the kids and my life goes great, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Until it happens to me, I don't want to know and don't care okay. about what's really happening in the in the world around me. Yep. And unfortunately, that is what allows a system like this to exist because they practically run unchecked. Nobody is ever holding them accountable. And when something happens to you, it's too late to hold them accountable. You're now stuck in a system that's going to take years to change, years to fix, years to bring attention to. But that's how it goes. It takes them, what, four or five days a week, two weeks a month to convict you, but it takes you years, and I mean years, to prove your innocence. 
the the last statistics that I saw, the average amount of time spent in prison for a wrongful conviction for an innocent person is 12 to 22 years. That's the average amount of time. Now, I'm sure that that has changed in the six to eight years since I've last seen those statistics because the average amount of time that I know from personal experience of people that I personally know have proved their innocence is 25 plus years, 40 years. Mm -hmm. That's the average amount of time they're spending in prison. You ask anybody, any free person, how much would you have to be paid to give 20 or more years of your life in prison for something you didn't do? Mm -hmm. Get them to give you a hard dollar amount. There's nobody on earth that would take a million dollars for 20 years in prison. They wouldn't take $10 million for 20 years in prison. Nope. Nope. And yet they act that somehow people that are in prison are supposed to just accept it and then oops, the system screwed up and we'll try to fix it and oh, we're so sorry for you. That doesn't do any good. Nope. That, doesn't, that doesn't get your memories back. That doesn't get, you know, your life back, back. Your marriage back, your kids back, yep. your, any of that. Yep. The cost of incarceration there is more than most people realize beyond the loss of family, the loss of memories. You know, there's the cost to the person themselves and the experiences they go through in prison. You mm -hmm. know, um, my wife and I have this debate with people, free people all the time. And that is, there's a difference between a person who has committed a crime and is looking for a second chance and a person who is innocent and is asking for the first chance they've ever had to prove their innocence, the person who is in prison doing time for a crime that they're innocent of, they're having to experience this world as an innocent person, not as a criminal, not as somebody who did a crime and is guilty, as an innocent person. These experiences for them have a different effect. The, the daily life of an innocent person is different. Every day they're fighting to go home. Yes. It's easy to do time when you're guilty. You know how much time you got. You know exactly what you're dealing with. Very hard set guidelines for doing time when you know I got 20 years and that's what I'm going to do so I make that time work. For an innocent person, they're trying to go home every day. They're living every day like today should be their last day. They have to stay out of trouble while being in a prison system. Because unfortunately, most people that would ever even attempt to help an innocent person are gonna look at their prison record, how they've done their time, and consider that in whether or not they should help them. They don't consider the fact that when you're in prison, regardless if you're innocent, if somebody threatens you, you gotta do something about it. You're in a system where they don't care if you were threatened and you had to defend yourself, you're going to get a fighting charge. So you're not going to help me as an innocent person because potentially I have fighting charges. There is an effect, a cause and effect for everything. And all of that plays a factor. For me, I've experienced things that a lot of people experience, but from a different perspective. With the criminal justice system, there's the race issue. Yes. We talk about race disparities in sentencing, how that plays a factor in jury decisions, how much time you get, 
how much help you get, you know, how you're looked at. People judge you simply because you're race. Oh, they look guilty. Or they must have done it. Each of these things play a factor. And I've experienced them despite being on the other side of the fence as a white man. I've been turned down by Innocence Project for being white because they wanted to prove that they weren't discriminatory and that they were going to get with the, the program, you know, of changing the system and the disparities to the point where they went the other direction and they said, sorry, we can't help you. And the, the lawyers that were involved in the case and the people that had already put up money to help fight my case and they were just waiting on this as probably to sign off on it, they were stumped. <laughs> They'd never seen anything like it before. They didn't know what to do. They called me nearly crying on the phone because they, they were planning on having me out by Christmas seven years ago. And all that got derailed because of my race. So I understand what it feels like from a different perspective of being judged on something I have no control of and has no factor on my innocence or guilt. You're not guilty because of the color you are or the person you are or your religion or your or, or any other aspect of you as a person. None of those things should make you guilty or innocent. But unfortunately, they do become a factor in the system. Every one of those things. There are innocent products who won't help you unless you have a DNA case. That is true. Unfortunately, <laughs> most non-sex offense sex cases, you know, cases that are not a murder rate, don't have DNA. So I'm automatically precluded from 90% of the innocence projects just because I don't have DNA in my case. Just because of that. That's us too. So, you know, trying to find help, trying to find somebody that's willing to believe you, give you a chance, give you a first chance, is hard. And on top of it, there are so many people who are innocent fighting for their freedom. There isn't enough people out there helping people to help all of them. There just isn't enough. No, it's and not. So you sit in the wings and you wait. And you wait. And you do everything you can. You fight. You talk about your story. You reach out to people. And you spend year after year after year telling people. Well, you know, I'm fighting my case. I don't know when I'm going to get out, but I'm going to keep fighting it. And 10 years down the road, you run across those same people and they go, you're still in here? And you go, yeah, the system doesn't move at the speed that you'd like it to. Once you're on this side, you're in here for a while. Yeah. And, you know, there's an aspect of innocence cases that's underreported that people don't know about. And I think it definitely plays a part in awareness. There are a lot of people who prove their innocence through the typical or normal means of their family pays for a lawyer and they fight their case and they win it. They don't go through innocence projects. They don't have media attention. And because of that, they go home and nobody ever reports about their innocence. Nobody ever hears about it. They only hear about the one or two cases every so often that are represented by Innocence Project and have media attention. And so people understand that there are people who are innocent in prison, but they don't get the enormity of how many people are innocent and in prison. Hundreds of thousands of people in America are in prison for crimes they're innocent of. 
And beyond the fact that that in itself is a tragedy and a massive injustice, you have the fact that for every one of those that are in prison for a crime they didn't commit, there's somebody not in prison for a crime they did commit, and they're still in your community committing crimes. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Just make just the everyday American angry that the police, the prosecutors, the judges, the criminal justice system, they don't care about the truth. They care about a conviction, clearing the books, making somebody go to prison because, unfortunately, people want revenge. They don't want justice. They all say justice. You hear them on TV all the time when, you know, the police kill somebody in the streets. We want justice. We want justice. If it's, you know, as long as the system declares whether this is a, a good killing or a bad killing, we just want justice. And then guess what? When the decision doesn't go their way, they're mad in the streets, tearing up the neighborhood because they didn't get what they wanted. They didn't want justice. They want revenge. People want revenge. They want somebody to pay. It makes them feel better. But that clouds their judgment. And they don't care who pays. As long as somebody pays, they're happy and they're content. And they don't care about the fact whether it's the person who actually committed the crime or not. And so you sit there pleading for your life in a chair, guilty from the minute you are arrested. You are guilty the minute you're arrested. There is no such thing as innocent. until proven guilty. Nope. You are guilty until proven innocent. Mm-hmm. And there is a scientifically proven reality to that, and it's termed the CSI effect. Americans have been watching TV shows for so many years that they believe that what they see on TV is the truth and reality, that they really have the forensics, they really have the testing capabilities, they really have the investigative acumen, they always have the right guy, if they arrested you, you're definitely guilty. They believe all that. They don't know all that fictitious and none of it's real, but they believe it. And they believe it so much that they can quantify what is called the CSI effect. You can Google search it. There's reports on it all day long. They can quantify how much of an effect that has on people judging you guilty immediately upon arrest. As soon as they declare you a suspect and arrest you, you're guilty and they can't see innocence. Most cases that are found innocent or they are found not guilty at trial, it's because the attorney drags the case out for three, four months and muddies the water so much that they're confused and they don't know what to do. It's not because the people actually believe somebody's innocent. Things can't come to a determination. You are almost never going to get a jury to believe somebody's innocent because they're so jaded by what they see and what they think and what they believe to be true. And so unfortunately, while this ideology of a jury of your peers somehow gives you the best chance, it doesn't. A judge trial is the best chance because at least you only have one person and technically they're not supposed to be affected by all those external things the way jury members are allowed to. They're supposed to apply the law separate of their feelings or their emotions. And so, realistically, that's probably your best chance nowadays. It's a sad system that we've come to this point. And insanely, only 2% of all cases that are indicted in the United States ever go to trial. 98% of all indicted cases end on a plea deal. 
Yep, and that's what my husband was forced into oh. because his attorney refused to go to trial with no evidence, <laughs> none. Exactly, and there is and, and there is a reason why because they will pad charges, they will overcharge you, they will stack charges, mm-hmm. they will clear the docket from multiple counties for anything closely related to what they're accusing you of, and they tell you, hey, look, if you plead guilty to 20 years, we'll drop the other 18,000 years worth of charges, and you go, well, I know I didn't do any of those, but if I try to go to trial and fight my innocence on the ones I know I didn't do, and they convict me on any of them, I'm going away for life. I go ahead and take my 20 years, at least it's better than you know not having a chance at life at all. And they force people into bad plea deals through a system that you have no confidence in. And bad plea deals being pushed by attorneys is nothing new. Nope. In 2013 or 14, the United States Supreme Court came out with two back-to-back cases that are now precedent in plea deal cases. Um, Missouri versus Fry and Lafleur versus Cooper, and they they cross each other in in the one situation the attorney told his forced or pushed his client to take a bad plea deal, claiming that if he didn't take it, they could hem him up for way more charges than the law ever allowed for, and he gave him bad legal advice, wrong legal advice, and forced him into a bad, bad plea deal. In the other case, the attorney told him not to take a plea deal or didn't tell him to take a plea deal when he should have and didn't give him legal advice to tell him how that plea deal would have benefited him. Mm-hmm. And he ended up getting an astronomical amount of time. Mm-hmm. And so those cases have crossed each other to handle sort of all scenarios of bad plea deals because the reality is in America, a huge number of plea deals are Bad plea deals, they're forced plea deals. I know of I know of another guy who's in Michigan who was given a plea deal by the prosecutor, faced no time at all, just probation on white collar financial crimes, went before the judge, judge said, Yep, great, you know, we got a plea deal, this is what it is and all that stuff. You understand it? Yes, yes, plead guilty, okay, plead guilty. He said, Now you pled guilty, I'm gonna throw out the plea deal and I'm gonna give you twenty to life. Wow. Just like that. <laughs> so, there's just yet another problem with the, quote, justice system. It's horrible. And but it's, it's know, made like that because, you know, it's modern day slavery. So, yeah. you know, they, they get paid for the bids, you know? Well, I hate to say it's not really modern day slavery. It's a continuation of slavery because slavery unbeknownst to most Americans until recent years when you've had some of these citizen referendums, slavery was never abolished in America, ever. It was abolished for people who were technically free, but it was never abolished. Slavery has always existed for incarcerated persons. If you're incarcerated or judged guilty of a crime, you are a slave. And always have been. They never fully abolished slavery. And I try to explain to people in any way possible how slavery works in this form. On one side, a, a, a true slave has absolutely no constitutional rights whatsoever. They're not 
nope. yet, in every state that still has slavery on the books, you have a, quote, constitutional right to challenge the validity of your conviction through a habeas corpus. But if I'm a slave, I have no constitutional rights. Either I have them or I don't have them. So the system is picking or choosing. It's saying we're going to give you a, quote, right to challenge your conviction because we want to make it look like the system is legitimate and you have a legitimate way to challenge anything that may have been done wrong in your case. Mm-hmm. But in reality, you're a slave. You don't have any chance. You have no rights. You don't have any say whatsoever. And I think at this point, there's, I know Colorado was the first, I believe another state did it in the last year or so, they passed citizen referendums to abolish slavery altogether, period. For incarcerated, non-incarcerated, free, it doesn't matter. There is no enslavement. There is no slavery. The minute they did that, they got hammered with federal lawsuits from the inmates because now they were no longer slaves. They had a right to minimum wage. I didn't lose that because I'm incarcerated. Incarceration as my punishment is solely my punishment. It's to be removed from society. My punishment does not include less than a minimum wage, less than than adequate food, less than adequate accommodation. So they started suing them. Mm -hmm. And it absolutely wrecked the system because they couldn't do anything to stop it because the slavery clause was done. But they can't afford to actually pay or feed or accommodate properly the number of people they had incarcerated. So we'll see how many more states. I know there's citizen referendums up on the ballot. I know they've been up last year. There'll probably be some more this year as other states are pushing that. And, you know, I hope that just from the political or the kind of image perspective that people will vote to abolish slavery in the prison system, whether or not they actually get it or care about the prisoners themselves, they care more about the fact that it sounds horrible that there's still slavery in America, at least that's one step closer to gaining some sort of right, some kind of challenge to what's happening in the system. Mm -hmm. But one of my, I guess, frustrations about the system is if more people that are affected by this, there could be a change. I argue all the time. If guys spend half as much time as they spend playing tabletop games and doing stupid things in prison and actually spent that time in the law library filing cases, filing paperwork, they could basically dictate their, their incarceration and exactly how it would happen. And I've seen it. I've, I've seen proof. There's a guy in my pod and he's, you know, got medical disabilities and he's used so effectively that he's got boxes full of court orders telling the state that he can do this, that, and the other that they don't let anybody else do. And it drives them up a wall. And if everybody did that, they could break the system from the inside out. How, yep, sure could. But, no, they'd rather, you know, argue over super card games. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know it. I know it. But we got to keep we got to keep fighting. You know, I know a lot of states are trying to do away with servitude, um, but we got to keep fighting. You got to keep fighting, too. You know, you never stop fighting for your innocence. And we appreciate you 
sharing your story and hope that it could get more attention. We're in the same boat, so don't feel alone. <laughs> We're in the exact same boat. I will definitely stay in touch. You do that. Thank you so much. Have a good one, Tim. All right, you too. Bye-bye. So, Black Light listeners, I hope you enjoyed that thorough interview that we had with Mr. Tim Wright. As you see, there are many, many people that are wrongfully convicted. And I just want to talk to you about the harms of wrongful conviction. Uh, For one, it takes a personal and emotional toll. Wrongful conviction, wrongful convicted individuals experience immense emotional trauma often enduring years or even decades in prison for crimes they did not commit. The psychological impact of imprisonment and loss of freedom can be profound. Families of wrongful convicted also suffer greatly, facing the anguish of seeing their loved ones in prison for crimes they did not commit. Relationships may be strained and the financial burden can be overwhelming. Two, the loss of the opportunities. Wrongful convictions rob individuals of precious time that they could have been spent building careers, pursuing education, and nurturing relationships. Their loss of years can never be regained. The wrongful conviction often misses out on important milestones and opportunities such as attending graduations, weddings, birth of children. These missed moments can never be replaced. So we need to think about that. Think about the harm. It's not only causing the person that was wrongfully convicted, but the harm that it's causing the family and the community of losing someone who is wrongfully convicted. And as I say over and over and over, and you've heard Tim also say it, that it only takes a short period of time to find somebody guilty for crime, but it takes years upon years to prove your innocence. And a lot of times you can't find the help that you need. A lot of times it takes you years to find new evidence. And sometimes you don't have new evidence, just like Tim had stated, he doesn't have any DNA. And a lot of innocence projects will only take your case if you have a DNA case or if you find new evidence. And a lot of times you're not gonna find new evidence. What you have is what you have. What you have in your discovery is all the evidence you're gonna get unless there's evidence that has been withheld that should have been turned over and that could be new evidence. But other than that, that's all you get. And so it's crazy how America has just tilted the scales for injustice. It's hard to find yourself what you need to get out, but it's easy to accuse you and convict you. And so it stigmatizes the community a lot. Even after exoneration, wrongful convicted individuals often face significant challenges reintegrating into society because they have been incarcerated for so long that they've lost important skills. Some lose how to communicate. Some lose how to do certain things in life because they've been pulled away from it for so long. So they can't remember how to do it. They can't find employment. They can't find housing. You know, they face social stigmatism. The stigmatism of being wrongfully convicted can follow individuals for the rest of their lives, affecting their ability to rebuild their lives and regain their reputation in society. When you've been taken away from society for 20, 30, 40 years, imagine how hard it is to regain your reputation. 
all they can think about is you have been gone for so long. Some people tend to forget who you are because you have been locked away or warehoused in a prison for years upon years fighting for your innocence. And so it's hard. It's it's sad that we are constantly taking away community members and warehousing them in a prison. As I said before, and in previous episodes, it seems as if whole communities are now being warehoused in prisons. And you have these politicians who are still on that tough on crime rhetoric when being tough on crime has not stopped crime. The what we should be doing is finding the root cause of the crime. What's causing people to to commit crimes, even if they are actually committing crimes, like not having resources in communities, not putting restorative justice in the communities is what can oftentimes cause crime. You have to resource your communities. If you want a thriving community, you have to resource them with sustainable housing, jobs, the kids need boys and girls clubs. They need a lot of activities that that is no longer in our communities. They have tore the communities down because they continue to warehouse people. But when you don't have those types of essential resources, it causes you to go out there and commit crimes if you have to. I mean, think about, you know, single moms or dads or families who have to feed their children and they're out here working two and three jobs to survive, especially now in this generation. Sometimes you have to go do what you got to do so that your child can eat. We have to do better about finding the root cause of why these things are going on. And it seems like the politicians just want to always say, oh, we're going to make the community safe by warehousing people in prison and making people um be accountable for their crimes, but you're not making them accountable by just putting them in, in a prison where we know that the culture is nasty. That's not going to help anybody be accountable. It's going to, if anything, it's going to mentally deteriorate you even more. And let's not talk about the financial cost of housing people in prison. Like at first it used to be a booming industry but now that everything is so high, it's just as high to take care of somebody incarcerated as it is to take care of somebody out here. So imagine all of these billions of dollars that taxpayers are paying into the prison system because we are paying into the prison system. Imagine what we could do with that if we put those in our communities. Imagine how beautiful our communities could be if we put those billions of dollars back into the community and invest in our communities. We don't believe in investing in the community. All we believe is investing into the prison industrial complex, which is not getting us anywhere. Wrongful convictions not only impact individuals and their families emotionally, but it also has a significant financial implication. The costs associated with investigating, prosecuting, and incarcerating innocent individuals are substantial and burdensome on taxpayers. Let me give you an example. I was watching a trial the other day. This guy has been on trial for, this is his second trial. First jury found him not guilty. Second jury found him not guilty. They wanted to try him a third time. Imagine how much money is spent in three trials. What I don't understand is there's regulations 
for defense attorneys, there's regulations and everything besides prosecuting. So you mean to tell me attorney, a prosecuting attorney can take a case back to trial, not once, not twice, three or four times until either the judge says that's enough or the prosecutor just understands that the jury's not going to find them guilty and they offer them a plea deal. But instead of offering them a plea deal, why not just drop the charges? Why keep using taxpayers' money to take people to trial when you don't have the sufficient beyond a reasonable doubt evidence? That's what it's supposed to be about. You're supposed to be found guilty on evidence that is beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm not understanding how people can be convicted on circumstantial evidence. It's circumstantial. That's not saying that that's beyond a reasonable doubt that I have this evidence to prove that you did this beyond a reasonable doubt. But as you see, a lot of people are being convicted off of circumstantial evidence. And then you have certain prosecutors that come up with these illusions of stories to give to the jury when they know that's not true, as you heard in Tim's case. They came up with an illusion that it was a love triangle. Where is the proof of the love triangle? just so they can win a conviction, it's about finding who is actually guilty. Not just picking somebody because you want to put somebody in prison. I mean, come on, y'all. This, this, it's just, it's enough is enough. Like we've been doing the same song for many years and nothing has changed. Nothing. The crime rate, well, well, the crime rate has actually dropped, believe it or not. A lot of the fear mongers want to tell you that the crime rate has hiked. But other studies have shown that the crime rate has actually dropped. So instead of us focusing on what are things that are changing for the crime rate to drop, we want to keep honing in that the crime rate is higher and it's higher and it's getting higher. And that's not true. That's why I say we have to be more invested in what's going on in our communities and know and understand that sometimes a lot of the stuff that we hear is propaganda. It's not true. And so if we can understand that this is propaganda and try to change the way that our system is, it would be so, so much better for everybody. So here we go. When the innocent person is wrongfully convicted, the true perpetrator remains at large, posing a continuing threat to society. Wrongful convictions impede the pursuit of justice and allow the guilty party to invade accountability. Wrongful convictions have fear-reaching and devastating consequences. They are not only harm to the lives of the wrongfully convicted and their loved ones, but they also erode public's trust in the criminal justice system. It is critical to address the systematic flaws that continue and contribute to wrongful convictions and work towards a fair and just system that upholds the principles of justice and protects the innocent. That is exactly what we need to do. There's too many people that are being wrongfully convicted that are innocent and have to be subjected to nasty, disgusting behavior of prison and it's not fair. It's not fair that we aren't focusing on the people that are innocent to get them out of prison. They should be the very first ones that come out. So community, please, please, please get invested. Get 
please get invested in your community. Join an organization so that you can start mobilizing and organizing to change the way that our current system is. Because our current system is not about the people. It's not about justice. It's not about fairness. It's about whatever ideology or thought that comes across prosecutors' minds, police minds. We got to do better. And I'm going to keep saying that because I'm just, it's too many people that are being wrongfully convicted and then have to be subject to disgusting treatment. And then when they come home, they're not even the same person they was when they went. Because when you go to prison, I don't care who you are. When you go to prison and you are subjected to that kind of treatment, which is torture, then it it tears you down as a person. It tears you down mentally, physically, emotionally. It takes a huge toll on your body. And therefore, it changes you as a person. Not for the good, but for the worst. And the only way that it changes you for the good is if you're really able to rehabilitate your own self. Because we know that prison will never rehabilitate anybody unless they change their culture. Now, if we get on the Norway culture, then yes, I can see rehabilitation happening. I can see our communities being whole. But until then, they're going to continue to be broken. They're going to continue to be warehousing people in prison. So y'all, please get up and fight. Stand up and fight. We have to show them that it's no more. We will not take this anymore. We want something that's fair and just. We want something that's going to invest in our communities. And we just got to do it, y'all. So get to it. Get to it. Stand up, fight, fight the good fight, stand up for the voiceless, and let's change the system, y'all. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I know I did. Tim was very insightful. And just remember, it could be you. Nobody is exempt from the criminal justice system. At any time, you can be wrapped up in that system and you can't get out. So please, y'all, organize, mobilize, and get out there and make a difference. Take care, y'all. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.